0: The following podcast is brought to you by The Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. If you have your Bibles, the main... Passage, well, we're going to be all over as I'm teaching today, Um, but the main passage that we're going to start with is in Revelation chapter 20. So if if you have your Bible, you can go there, but um, I want to uh, start with just a different scripture and uh, just a a moment of prayer, and then we'll move into our passage. Um, This week, just Satan. And the schemes that he brings to this world just rear their ugly head and we think about just yesterday, just how chaotic that sounds in Little Somerset that we would have tragedy and we would have uh, just the, the activity that was going on. I'm being pretty general just because we have little ears in the audience. Um, but I want us to focus our attention here to Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul writes this to us. He says in verse 12, "...we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." And in verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Church, we're called to take up the armor of God to withstand this evil day. And there's a lot of people that may not know what to do with the evil in this world. This Week coming, you may have conversations. If God is so good, what do we, how do we make heads and tails of what happened in our town? What do we do with this? We point back to the beginning that this isn't a mystery to, to those who are in Christ. We see from the very beginning that, that the serpent has come to kill, steal, and destroy. From Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, we talked this past Wednesday just about the the sanctity of life, and there is a cosmic battle raging right now, and Satan is hell-bent, literally, to send as many people to their destruction. And so we see sorrow and suffering and brokenness, and what do we do? Well, we, we take up the full armor of God, and we come in prayer. We come with the power of the gospel. Christ is what is needed to transform and change hearts. And so we come praying that God would shine his marvelous light into the souls of man and transform them. And so will you pray with me uh, as we just pray for our community, as we just pray for our families and households that are here around us, that they would be impacted by the gospel and. That also means impacted by you, church, because you are in this community. You carry that gospel light. So pray with me. Father, we look at the chaos of this world, and we are grieved by it. We look at the evil that was committed, and it, it, it breaks us. And then we think of the grace you have towards man who is bent on sin and destruction, because he is blind and deceived. He has been blinded to the truth. The prince of the power of the air has blinded man, so he will not see the gospel. But Father, you are greater than he who is in the world. You can open eyes to see, hearts to be made new. So, Father, we pray that that we as the church, we would move forward in grace and kindness and love and humility, but with great boldness. Lord, would you fill your church with with the overflowing presence of your Holy Spirit to move forward into the community with great boldness? Would you stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders and bring people to yourself? Would you transform hearts? Only you can do that, Father. So may we have words to to proclaim the hope that is found in only the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see this broken world, but we understand you have not left us ignorant. You have given us all that we need. You have given us yourself. So Father, we pray for those in our community that you would bind up the broken, the hurting, that you would help them to process what has happened and taken place just this past week. Lord, that you would strengthen the bride of Christ to be the witness that she should be. May you be lifted up. Jesus, you said, if I be lifted up, I would draw all men unto myself. So we want to lift up Christ. Father, we want to raise him high and exalt him above all things. We want these strongholds to be torn down and replaced with the king and the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would teach us in this moment, as we look at the scriptures, to be focused on Jesus and be in awe that the things of the world, the winds and the waves, do not distract us as they did Peter on the water, but we would have our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would go forward with the gospel of grace for a world that is perishing. So, Father, teach us. Renew us, excite us in your perfect plan. And Lord, we just again ask that you would just be the healing that our community needs after this past week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to be Uh, as I said, here to start. And what we're going to do is I'm hopefully, this is more of a teaching today. So I am approaching Revelation from a premillennial view. And so if you haven't studied end times and you haven't really gotten into all of that, and you're thinking, well, it's premillennial, like this is weird language. I'm going to talk through it. I'm going to give you the timeline. I'm going to show you where we are. So we just finished the churches in chapters two and three, and we're getting ready to move into four, which is the scene of the heavenly throne room. And so you don't get lost. I want you to kind of see where it is in this understanding of the premillennial view of, of the end times. So a lot of teaching today, not as much like preaching, but but more of just trying to get us all together so you know where I'm coming from. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. This is what we read. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints." and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the passage, this one's mine, this is the passage that we need to look at as we talk about in times, as we talk about uh, the end of all things. Each end-time view has to interpret Revelation 20 in some way. They have to deal with it. And this is where we have this word millennium. This is the first time it shows up in Scripture. It just literally means a thousand years. Uh, it's pretty plain on the face of it. We're talking about a thousand-year period of time, a, reign, a, a, a context in which Jesus is reigning. Now, the larger context is that it's set in the return of Jesus Christ and, and in his, and his ruling. So Jesus does say that he's going to come again. We see in John 14, verse 3. There's lots of different verses. I'm just going to pick out two today. It says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So here we see Jesus saying, I will come again. We also see in Acts chapter 1, verses. 10 and 11, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so we see here in this larger context that Jesus is is coming back. He is to return every end-time view, be it... uh, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. We all believe in a literal return of Jesus. Uh, It's it's clear in the Scriptures. Revelation 20 shows this picture of of return and what's happening. But in Revelation 20, there's a few details I want us to pull out because these are the things we have to deal with. So verses 2 through 5 says this. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those whom the authority to... uh Did you go too fast? Authority to reign? Of their foreheads, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So, as we're looking at this passage out of Revelation uh, 20, there's a few things. First, uh, this is the first mention of the thousand years, this millennium. So, what do we do with the millennium? The second is Satan is bound in this passage, but then released. So what is the role? What is happening with Satan? And then the third thing is that there is is a a reign, a thousand-year time period of reign with those uh, saints that are with Christ. So this is called the first resurrection here. And so before I get to pre I'm, I'm going to do... Just a really high, like 30,000 view foot over two other views of the end times. And now it's not going to be exhaustive. I'm not talking about the pros and cons of these views. I'm just trying to give you an idea of what the two views are. And this is kind of what, in general, what they believe. So if you hold one of these views, that's fine. Uh, I'm just trying to put it out there. And you may say I wasn't generous enough uh, with with it if you hold it. But hopefully what I'm doing is if you have no context... Um, with the three different views of end times, this will at least kind of give you an idea when people say they hold this view or they hold that view, you kind of have a general idea of what they're talking about, okay? Uh, So the first one I want to just mention here is all millennial. So all millennial is the first one. All means without, millennial means thousand years. So they, they say there's not a thousand year reign. It's without a thousand year reign. So Revelation 20 is not future they would say at all. This is actually symbolic language referring to the present age. So an all-millennial viewpoint of the end times would say revelation is, is very symbolic. It's, it's metaphorical. It's, it has a lot of imagery and pictures, but it's actually talking about now. There's not a real millennial reign. They're saying Jesus will return. He will bodily return, but but there's not this thousand-year period. What Revelation 20 is talking about is, is symbolic language. So they would say, Jesus right now is reigning from heaven. This is the second point. And those who die, the believers who die, will be caught up with him, that we will go to heaven, we will be with the Lord, and we will reign with him. So that's the, that's the ones who are reigning in this passage. They would say, well, we're reigning now. Those are uh, with him. And then the third point point here, it says there's no future millennium. So 2022, right now, is in the church age. Jesus will return at the end of the church age, whenever that is. Then the judgment, the new heavens, and the new earth, and then the eternal state. So they would say this is kind of how we view Revelation in the end times. There's, there's not a, a literal millennial reign of Jesus, as 20 talks about there. The next, uh, I'm just going to Hit is post-millennial. Now, post-millennial is after a millennial. So there's, there's a difference. So ah is without, post means after. So this is the gospel, uh, and the kingdom of God will, I should say and, by the way, sorry, and the kingdom of God will uh, overtake the current state of the world. So this uh, view is saying that we are commissioned Uh, We see in certain parables about the gospel growing, about it permeating, how it goes out, it becomes greater. Many people will come into the kingdom. The gospel will go to all nations. The Great Commission go to every tribe, nation, and tongue. We see in Revelation that every tribe, nation, and tongue are present before the throne. So the idea is that the gospel will go forward. It will continue to go forward. It will start to change the culture of the world at some point will take a foothold and it will start to change people to where there will then be a betterment of the world stage and then a thousand-year rule of the kingdom of God will happen. So there will be a Christianizing of the world and for a thousand years there's going to be this this living under the gospel and under kingdom principles. So there's going to be the meshing of believers, non-believers, but you will see the gospel take take root in this view, and at the end of the thousand years, so the the Christians are really ruling at that time, that's where the reign is, that's where the reigning with Christ, Christ in heaven is reigning, but there's also the reign on the earth, so at the end of that thousand years, post the millennium, at the end of that thousand years, Christ then bodily returns, then the judgment, then the new heavens, a new earth, and the eternal state. And so these are two views as they look at this. Now, you may say those seem weird to you if you don't hold them or whatever, but let me tell you, these are brothers and sisters in the Lord. They hold Scripture to these views. They, they, are, they are going to be with us. <laughs> you know, so we don't, I'm just giving you these, these theological viewpoints so you kind of know what's, what's out there as people have tried to discern uh, what Scripture teaches. Now, I am teaching and preaching through uh, from a premillennial view. And so the premillennial view of Scripture, uh, I think, fits Revelation 20 differently, and I think it fits it pretty well. So let me just kind of show you premillennial. So premillennial is this. There's a specific tribulation will occur, and the church may or may not see all or part of it. So we would say at some point there's a specific tribulation that's going to happen. So we see it as future. This whole thing is historic. It's future. It's a prophecy that will be unfolding and will be fulfilled. So there is a tribulation. And when I say the church may or may not see it, it's because there's different views in the premillennial view. This is where it gets confusing. Because in the premillennial view, there's three views of rapture. (laughs) And they're like, well, maybe this, or maybe this, or maybe this. But that deals with the tribulation. So we see that at some point Christ will return before, premillennial pre mean before, before the thousand-year reign. So we say Jesus will return, and then a millennial reign will occur. So what happens before we think fits in here pretty well, I believe fits in here pretty well with the, with the passages and what Scripture teaches. Um, so when he returns... Believers are caught up with him to rule. We saw about the resurrection of the dead, those who did not take the mark, did not worship the beast. They are resurrected. They are caught up with him. They're glorified, and they come and rule with him for a thousand years. Not everyone is resurrected at that point, just the specific, the church that returns with him and those that come through the tribulation, those are caught up with him. And you see that there is an actual reigning with Christ on the earth, for a thousand years. And there is not a new heaven, a new earth at that time, at that thousand years. But there will be a renewal of the earth because everything will be as it was supposed to be. Like even in the fallen state, everything will be under the kingdom principle. So there's a renewing of, of what life should look like and how uh, the earth will respond to that as well. But there's a thousand year reign there. Satan will be bound for that thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, he will be loosened. So there will be believers and non-believers on the earth for that thousand years. The believers who are glorified, they will not have children. They will not be in marriage and that. They will be with Christ ruling and reigning. But you will have those who are coming to faith, living, and then dying long life. And they will wait for the next resurrection. You have those who will come and even under the rule of Christ will not repent, will not but they will live under his authority. The world will be very different. It will still live under his authority. So you have believers, non-believers in that millennial reign. And this may sound confusing, but we're going to keep unpacking it. (laughs) Um, But at the end, when Satan is loosened, those who have not received Christ can be deceived. And they will rebel against him. And they will rebel against Christ, is what I'm saying. And so then you have that multitude that come up, surround the heavenly city, and then judgment, new heavens, new earth, uh, eternal state. And so it's a very different view of of how things kind of work out in there. But rapture and all that happens before the return of Jesus. So very premillennial has a lot of little moving parts. This is the one, this is the one that when you're talking to others, they kind of laugh because they're like, you got all those charts for the end times, and this goes here, and this goes here, and all. And yet if you do a Google search and you just put end times, you know which ones are the premillennials because it's the ones that's like, you can't even make out what's on there. There's all these arrows and lines and all this stuff, and it's all, you're just like, yep, that guy's pre-millennial. <laughs> it's like, and then you see the other ones, it's just like a straight line. It's like Jesus comes back. Yep, that's uh, the all-millennial guy right there, you know pretty easy. So anyway, we see this, and we see this uh, setup of end times, and this is the perspective at which I'm bringing revelation to us, okay? So if you have questions or you're wondering why I'm interpreting certain things certain ways, it's because this is the lens in which we're looking through it. This is the one I think fits scripture the best, um, if I didn't, I would teach you a different one. This is one I think fits the best. Um, so, why, so why premillennial? So you say, okay, why, Pastor Rob? Why did you pick this one? Well, first is because of future events. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this. <coughs> Jesus speaking, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are, by, are many, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And then, again, Luke 18, 8 says this, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, this is Jesus speaking, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So these two passages actually kind of point that there's a moving away from the kingdom of God, away from the principle, like, like, Here he's saying the multitudes are seeking heaven, but they're going to go on this broad path. They're not going to go by the narrow way. Very few find the narrow way. The reality is is that the majority will will reject God and reject Christ and go down the broad path. Here he says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Will there be faith? And so there's this moving of future events that look as if we're actually moving away from from Christ and the kingdom, even though the gospel continues to go out, you'll see passages like this. Uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there, there are antichrists who have come. There are types who have come, but the one the one to fulfill this, to really fulfill what this talks about and what Revelation talks about, uh, has not been fulfilled completely. And so there's, there seems that this man of lawlessness has not been revealed yet. He is still to come. There's a future event. This, this person is still to be seen. This one has not made his way into the temple, and which means the temple at some point will need to be rebuilt. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But understand this, in the last days there will, content, there will come times of difficulty. So You see Paul talking to Timothy, we're in these last days now, past the cross in the church age, he says there's going to be times of difficulty. So this is like if we were to say big T tribulation of revelation and little t tribulation of the world, he's saying we're in the little t tribulation, there's going to be troubles. It's not going to keep getting better, there's going to be difficulties, these times of difficulty and persecution and trial, they're going to come. Matthew 24, Jesus speaking, says this, And for then there will be great tribulation. So this is big T tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So here you have Jesus talking about a tribulation to come that's unlike any tribulation that's ever happened. He says, this will happen in the end, and those days will be cut short. Otherwise, no one would survive it. And so we see this tribulation before the return. So, so it, it appears that Scripture is pointing us to see this tribulational time that Revelation talks about. Other Scriptures that appear to show Jesus' return before the millennium, uh, Revelation 20, again, it, that shows him here before the millennium. Uh, but then there's passages like this, Isaiah 65, 20. Now this isn't, okay, I'm going to, if you read this whole chapter, you're going to be like, Pastor Rob, I have a question about it because it says new heavens, new earth here and all this. And I'm going to tell you, this is not the best passage. But what this passage shows us is something I think uh, important that that points us to understanding uh, what is happening in this millennial reign, that it's going to be different. So in this passage, Isaiah says this, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So here we see something different. This isn't now. This isn't the now state of things. This is very different. Isaiah is talking about a state of things that's 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 not like right now, but that infants don't die at a young age, young men a hundred years old, old, you know. But you still have sinners, you still have the accursed, you still have this moment where things are different, and so people uh, are in this new situation. So it looks as if. He's saying when the Lord returns, so Isaiah 65 really talks about the Lord coming, establishing rule, um, but he's talking about something that's different. Now it says in there there's a new heaven, new earth, but I think that's talking more about the, the restoration of things, how they should be right now if we were living under the rule of Christ. Not that he establishes new heavens and new earth, because if we're talking about the literal new heaven, new earth, there's no more sin there's no, he wipes away every tear. There's no more death. There's, there, we don't have this situation where there's people still living under judgment who are rebelling against Christ and his rule. So Isaiah's talking about something that's different. It's not in the normal state of what we experience right now. Now, this is probably one of the weaker passages, honestly. I'm just, but I'm just presenting it to you. Uh, Zechariah 14, though, this whole passage is, is really... Uh, worth reading, this whole chapter. But verse 4 says this, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And it goes on. Did I give you several verses out of that? Or just the one verse? Sorry? Sorry? Yeah, go ahead and go to that. And then 6 through 9 says, And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, on that day, the Lord will be one with His name one. And so we see here in Zechariah, He's talking about the Lord reigning over the earth. He's here on this earth. There is a a change of things, but there are still uh, those who are uh, on the earth who are not the redeemed. And you have those with Him, and He is ruling. So it's pointing towards this return. And it's pointing to something that's very different. And Zechariah um, also talks about them going up and celebrating the feasts of booths. And so I'll get there in a little bit because the feasts are important to us. Revelation 2, verse, verses 26 and 27, it talks about this. Do you have that passage? No. Okay, Revelation 2, this is what happens when you go on vacation. Uh, 26 and 27, 3, 4, 5. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So here is a, a blessing to those who overcome that they will rule the nations. So that's not right now. Because this is actually saying that they will be there. They are, they are going to be ruling over the nations that are there, the, the ethne groups. The, it says in Matthew, Pentata, ethne. Go to every ethnic group with the gospel. Here you're going to have believers who overcome, given the blessing of ruling over ethnic groups, that they will have this authority to, to reign with Christ. So this isn't the new heaven and new earth, though. This isn't the the final state of things. This is a a time period where believers will be there and they will be ruling. And in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul gives a hint of these ideas of resurrection and what that looks like. And so he says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, now this gives a resurrection order. He says Christ is the first fruits. He was the one who was was uh, killed on the cross. He was buried, and he was the first fruits. He's the one who raised from it was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits. But then at his coming, as we saw there in Revelation twenty, that that first resurrection, the the. The church comes with Christ from heaven, and those who are, are His that have come through, they are resurrected and they rule with Him. They have come through tribulation. They, they rule with Him. This is that first resurrection. And here in this passage, He says, and then. Now, this passage can be argued because then could be a short period of time or it could be a long period of time. And And so as I understand what, Paul's talking about here, and as we put it in light of like these in-time things, it's like he's saying, This is going to happen, and then after all of that, this. And he's not going to talk about what all of that is. Like he just says, this, then the end. And so it appears that it's a, a, like a short moment, but the the word used here can also have a larger gap of time in it. So so there could be a rain there. There and then He delivers the kingdom to the Father. So there's the judgment and the new heavens, new earth, and and the eternal state. So there's that gap. And so it hints at it. So why, when I look at some of these passages like this, why premillennial? Just because it's the easiest way to interpret chapter 20. I mean, I hear all the time from preachers, you know, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. If it's plain, why are we going to torture it and work it and try to make it into something if it's plainly spoken to us? Like, why not just take it at face value? It, it appears to me as I look through Scripture that this is the plain thing. Like, it's plainly stated. And and so I look at it and I can say, yeah, Revelation 20 really fits this premillennial view because it, it appears to me that the way we should look at Revelation 20 is just take it as a plain statement of God as to what will happen. So when we talk about Satan and being bound, uh, the amillennialists would say Satan's bound right now. They would say he's bound right now. Just You do have some demonic work and some evil happening in the world, but he's been bound and we're just waiting for the return. Uh, as a premillennialist, I'd say, no, Satan's loosed right now. He's running around. He's doing what he does. He's deceiving people. And when Jesus comes, he will be bound. And so we, we look at this and we have different views of what it means to reign, what Satan's role is. And, and so that's, that can be significant in some ways as we just walk out our faith. Each of us walking out in fear and trembling. Again, this is just the perspective of which I believe the, the Bible speaks to us. So... If you don't hold this view, I, I, I have nothing against you. I have great brothers and sisters that hold different views. And I know they're going to be reigning with us in, in heaven when it's all said and done. And, it's, and we all look back and say, one of us is going to say, I knew it. And the other ones are going to be like, you were right. You know, so, it, but this is kind of where we are. So let me give you a, a slide here uh, of a timeline So what you have here is you have the church age and the seven churches at the beginning. So that's what we just got done. With chapter 2 and 3, you have the seven churches. So I'm just going to walk over here. Hopefully that doesn't hurt the people online. I'm hiding behind the stand. Um, So you have the church age and the seven churches. That's what we just got done preaching and going through and talking about. And then we have this tribulation here. Uh, so this is where we think as a premillennial there's something special, there's something significant. It, we believe it's the fulfillment of Jacob's troubles or Daniel's prophecy of the 70th week. We think this is very specific, will be fulfilled. So you have the seven-year tribulation. Now at the end of the churches on this, you'll see this first line that says rapture with a question mark and the word treaty at the bottom. Well, The first thought is at the end of the church age, we don't know the day or hour, but there will be the rapture of the church because you won't see the church again till the end of Revelation. The church disappears from from the conversation. And so it looks as if God is bringing the church up potentially at the end of chapter uh, 2 and 3, before we get into 4, there's a rapture. It's somewhere around the treaty that is made by the Antichrist. And Uh, with the nations, and that begins that seven-year tribulation. It could be a little before. It could be while the ink is drying on the paper. It could be a little bit after. We don't know, but there would be a a, a rapture there. The next is mid-trib, where it says rapture with a question mark, and so as we're going through the tribulation, the thought is, well, things are going to kind of be going on an upswing, and things will be going well, but when Jesus is ready to really pour out the wrath, there's already been judgment and things happening, But at this point is the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist goes into the temple. He sets himself up as God. The false prophet sets up an image of of the Antichrist, which can operate and talk to people, and they have to worship. And that's the image that's giving them the mark. Uh, And so you have this mid-trib part. And here, this is where there's two witnesses who are killed in the streets. And if you're familiar with Revelation at all, there's two guys who are preaching, and the world doesn't like them, and eventually the Antichrist shows up, kills the two guys, goes into the temple, and sets himself up as God, and then as these guys are laying in the streets and the world's rejoicing because those guys are no longer alive, preaching doom and gloom and judgment, a voice from heaven tells them to, to get up and they are resurrected, and then he says, come up here. So the thought is that the church may go all the way through the first three and a half years and be resurrected, or not resurrected, but should be uh, raptured potentially with the two witnesses when they're raptured back up to heaven. So the church is kind of going along, and then they go at the midpoint when the man of lawlessness is seen. And then you have the last point is the church would go all the way through tribulation, just as if. Uh, looking at the picture of Egypt where Israel went through the plagues when God was bringing judgment, but God protected them from his judgment. But they were brought through all of it. They weren't taken out. They, they, they were there. So there's a thought that the church will go through the seven years of tribulation protected from the wrath of God, not protected from the wrath of the enemy, but protected from the wrath of God. And then when Christ returns, they, they, what people like to call a yo-yo rapture. They get caught up and they come right back down. You know, it's just kind of like, wee yay. You know, so they, they think that, that that's where the other rapture. So there's three different views as to where rapture could be in this view. So that's pretty clear, right? Helps you out? All right. So this is why a lot of people like myself, you know, pastors are like, I don't want to teach Revelation. This thing could get really muddy fast. But then we have the return of Jesus And then Revelation 20, that's at that return, the millennial rule. And then at the end of the millennia, you have Satan loosened. You have the great white throne judgment, new heaven, new earth. So this is kind of the timeline in a very simplistic way. Again, if you look this up, you're going to find all kinds of stuff crammed into this um, as as you look at this view. So this is a timeline of what we're looking at. Why else do I think it fits really well? It's because of the church age. So we looked at the churches. So here's where the churches are. Uh, this is where they are. This modern-day Turkey. You have Ephesus. It kind of makes this loop. It goes up and back down like this. So you have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So these are the churches that actually had this given to them written for them, Jesus spoke it, John wrote it down, sent to them, actual people there, actual places, churches that were there. And so there's that first part where we're seeing, okay, here's uh, what Jesus is saying to the churches in this moment, in this time, there's application there. But then also, this being an apocalyptic book, it's a prophetic book. It has other qualities to it. So there's, there's prophecy to it, and so you see that there's uh, a church age. And so it looks like this. So you have the seven churches that come through church history as ages of church history. And so the churches have been looked and, and understood in this way, where you have the Church of Ephesus. That's the apostolic church. It's the first one there on the left, from, so moving from left to right. Uh, church of Ephesus, it's it started uh, with Jesus' ascendant, when He ascended, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit came, so around 33 to 100 A.D. is that time period of the apostolic church, so it's when the church is birthed, it's the origins, around 100 A.D. when the last of the apostles uh, passed away to be with the Lord and had, had died, um, then that, that would put a close to this, this part of the time period. Now... I'm going to say this up front. Uh, Gary Hamrick is a pastor who has Bible study teaching on this online. Uh, He's out of Virginia, and he spends uh, a great deal of time really just unpacking all the church ages and the history and different stuff. It is worth a listen to. I'm flying over it. Gary uh, Hamrick. So if you want to see someone handle this really, really well, go watch him right? I was watching him, and I was like, yeah, this is great. So um, he, he talks about this in a lot more detail. So Ephesus is the apostolic church. Then you go to Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. Now, this is the church that was under persecution by Rome. It started in, in the apostolic period, but, but this is really a great time period of persecution. So the church is, 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 is being persecuted by, by Rome, and there's a lot of things that they're coming through, and it goes from 100 AD to 312 AD. Because in 312, 313, something significant happens uh, to close this time period, and that is that Constantine, the emperor at that time, becomes a Christian. So Rome, who was persecuting Christians, stops persecuting because now the emperor's one of them. <laughs> so it kind of makes sense, right? So they go through this time period. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Next, it goes to Pergamos. Now, that starts in 312 to 606. Now, Pergamos is the married church or the cultural church or the the one that is the political church. So what happens is that Constantine uh, becomes a Christian and then later at 380 uh, A.D., Christianity becomes the state religion. So you need to be a Christian. So everybody converts. That kind of muddies the water. It's not because I want Christ. It's because I, I, I'm supposed to be a Christian. We're all Christians. So this, this spirit has carried on even today when we were doing missions in, in uh, Central Europe. We would talk to people and we would share the gospel with them and they would say, we're all Christians here. Like, culturally, we're all Christians. Just, it's like, we don't understand why you would come and share Jesus with us. We, we're, we're, all, we're all Christians. But the reality is, they're not, right? Um, and so this is what happened. Uh, the church was married to the, 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 the state at that time. And this is actually where uh, the Roman Catholic Church is birthed from this time period. Now, there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of popes and a lot of people killing each other and backstabbing each other. And then eventually, you have the Church of the West excommunicating the the uh, the Church of of the East and and vice versa. So you have the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, and they split. But you see that in this time period, uh, the the Roman Catholic Church is 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 taking hold and and because it's married to the culture there's a lot of non-biblical traditions that take root Now, i'm not saying anything against my brothers and sisters i'm just pointing out what's what's true here is that there's a lot of cultural christianity there's a lot of things that happen there's a lot of traditions that creep in and they are still some of them are still there today um and so this happens in this time period Then it goes to Thyatira, which is 606 A.D. to 1517. And so this is the the corrupt church. So you have the the continued changing and morphing. And in 1517, the significant thing that ends this time period is that the Reformation begins. In 1517, this is when Martin Luther starts the Protestant Reformation. Now, there is... There was things happening before Martin Luther, but Martin Luther, with him putting his 95 reasons, we need to reform the church, we need to change and go back to what the Bible says. When he nailed those 95 theses on the the door of the church, he said, these are the issues I have. And that started this change of what was happening. And so it takes us to the church of Sardis, from 1517 to 1750. So this church is coming out. Sardis is the dead church, but it's the church that's coming out. It's, it's, it's reforming. It's, it's coming back to, uh, to life. So the church is dead, and Jesus is saying, you need to come back alive. And so here, the church is coming out of this corrupt teaching through the Reformation and, and the transformation of coming back to the Bible, back to the Gospel, uh, and and being transformed, and being made live again. The last two churches you'll see here go and they split. I think these two coincide. Uh, some say Philadelphia is from uh, 1750 to 1900. That's the great missionary movement. That's when all of a sudden the gospel's going all over the world, and people are sending missionaries all over the world, and they're just preaching the gospel and, and all these different places, and there is just, it's the love church, it's the missional church, um, and they would say that that time period would end with the Great Awakening, Um, but I think it continues on today. I think that Philadelphia will go uh, that church age. I think we will move into, uh, there's the rapture, and Laodicea starts around the 1900s. It's the lukewarm church or the apostate church. And so we read about, in the scriptures, about a great falling away in the end times. There'd be a great falling away. Well, I think these two churches go together. And what you see is that there are churches that are following the Lord, and they're going after him, and there are others who have turned uh, their, their backs on scripture and on Christ and on just basic doctrines that, you know, bloodless atonement, like uh, the virgin birth, things like this, they say, we don't believe in that. We don't hold to those things. They say, we, don't, we believe that Jesus didn't need to die. He didn't need to shed blood. He, we believe in uh, him just being a regular person. We believe different things. So they start moving away from the Bible and the teachings of Christianity, this liberal theology that started taking root starting really around the 1900s. It's continued to today, and that church will actually go into tribulation because they will not be raptured because they're not true believers. So you have this this muddying of the waters in the end times that I believe that we're in where Philadelphia and Laodicea are coexisting. And we have to be careful, you know? So here we see this, and, and, and I think that this fits the... Why pre, premillennial? Because I think this, this fits. And lastly, why premillennial? I think because of the, the, the feasts. I know this is a lot of information. You guys are probably like, oh my gosh, But let me show you this really quick. Uh, First is this graphic. This is my writing. I forgot to send one in for Jeff to make. All the pretty ones, Jeff, thank you. Uh, This one's mine. All right. Um, So what you see is there's the law, but at the cross, Jesus fulfills these these feasts, uh, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. He fulfills them perfectly. Jesus is the fulfillment of them. And then Fifty days later, Pentecost happens, and the Holy Spirit comes, and it's fulfilled. And then you go into the summer, so you have these feasts which lead us into the summer. The summer is the harvest. It's a time of working. It's, it's the church age. We are in that time period where we are working. We are laborers in the harvest. And then what happens is at the end of that time, we have three more that need to take place, And so these are the autumn feasts that will take place at the second coming. So you have trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is is there, and that's where the rapture would happen. So at the Feast of Trumpets, Matthew 24, 36, we, we read this. Do you have that on? Thanks. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So here at the Feast of Trumpets, what happens is that uh, the the men is for the new Year's, It's the Jewish New Year. They go up on the mountain. They watch the moon. They're waiting for the moon to be the new moon, and they have to have two or three of them. And they have to agree. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? What do you think? Is it? And once they all agree, they're like, okay, blow the shofar, and they blow the trumpet. So no one knows the time or hour, but they're just waiting for those guys to blow the trumpet, right? And so at that point, there would be the rapture that would happen. Here's the cool thing about the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is called into rest. Those who were laboring, those who were working, those who were doing the harvest, it's here's the trumpet, it's the new year, and hey, guess what? Harvest is over, guys. Come on up and take a rest. It fits really well (laughs) for a rapture. I'm like... That fits really well in its meaning. And then we wait for the next one, atonement. So the Feast of Trumpets then brings in what's called the Days of Awe, where they are repenting, they're reflecting on the relationship with God, they're preparing themselves for the atonement, which is when Christ would return, He would come at that second coming, judgment would happen, and it's one where they are made right with God. So Zechariah 12, 10 in Romans 11, I'm just going to mention these. You, if you're taking notes, you'll want to write them down. But this is where, uh, and where atonement, where they are made right. And this fulfills. So you see Old Testament and New Testament here. It's, it's fulfilled in Christ. So the atonement is the second coming. And then tabernacles is that time of worship and festivities. Zechariah 14, 16 says, then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, now listen, this is that altered time period of Zechariah, everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and keep the Feast of Booths. That's the millennial reign. So those who are on the earth will go year after year and worship uh, Christ and, and keep this. This is him tabernacling with us. He is with us. He is with his people. He is on the earth. So the feast shows that God's plan of redemption, the feasts show his redemption. And since Christ fulfills the first feast, it makes sense that he's going to fulfill the second feast. It makes sense that if he did it literally at the front end, he's going to do it literally at the back end. So this is part of the reason I think this is why we need to be looking at Revelation the way we do, and this is where we are in the time period. We're getting ready to talk about rapture and then the tribulation period before the coming. That's where we are in the book. All right, so what's the point? What's the point of all this? So I brought you up to speed, gave you a big lesson. You know, I'm not as good as my seminary professors, but hopefully you learned a little something today, or at least enough to confuse you. Um, what's the point? What do we do with this? We are in this time of harvest. It doesn't matter what you, what perspective you hold. We're in a time of harvest. We are in a time where we are moving every day closer to uh, the Lord returning, and we are to be proclaiming the gospel. We are to be telling people about the grace and mercy found in Jesus. We are to be holding out hope for them to to come and receive. We are to be sharing this gospel and engaging. And then we are to be encouraging the church in it. Encouraging one another. Hey, the days are, are near. Jesus is coming soon. Let me encourage you in your walk and how you're living. We are to encourage the church and we are to worship the Lord with all that we do. That's, this is what's important. We can see God has planned it all. And so we are busy doing what he has called us to do. So God has given many signs. He's confirmed it by his word. And he does so, so that we're not unaware of what he's doing. He's like, I showed you all this. I've given you signs. I've given you scriptures. I, I showed you exactly what's happening. Don't be unaware. This is what's happening So it should keep us focused and looking forward to the second coming with great anticipation. And we'll close with Acts 1, verse 11. Do you have that one? Can you go back to that? It's early on in your thing. Acts, no? I'll probably beat you there. There we go. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. We are looking for his beautiful, glorious return. Will you stand with me and pray? We're going to have a song of closing and then uh, they'll do an outro. They have two songs, but we'll just sing one and then uh, and then uh, they'll do an outro and we can, I'll dismiss us at that time. Father, I thank you for a lot of teaching today, a lot of stuff. And um, Lord, I just pray that we were able to hold on to some of this, that it would, that it would encourage us, that we would feel excited about your plan and, and what you're doing, that we would look towards the world around us and know that, that you, Lord Jesus, are the hope of the nations. You're the one that we need. You transformed us, you save us, you call us to yourself, you give us new life, and others around us need that. So may we just go with confidence that you will fulfill everything as you said you would and that we can go and share this with our neighbors knowing that this is the hope they need. This is what will change their life. This is where healing and and, and, and new life is really found. God, I just thank you. I thank you for uh, just how beautiful of a tapestry you weave and that you give us insight. Holy Spirit, thank you for teaching us. So may we go forward uh, boldly proclaiming this gospel to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. It's in Jesus' name we worship. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.